So this morning I'm going to talk again on finding refuge in the Buddha. And I hope I found a few things that were different um, and new. Um, I used, uh, I read a lot of suttas and picked some suttas out that mean a lot to me. Uh, and so that's something that will be different in this, uh, hopefully, in this talk about uh, taking refuge in the Buddha. So we've been focusing this month. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my talk up on the screen, which will be better. Wait a minute. Just a second. I just lost everybody. Okay. I think my talk is over here. Just a second. Yeah, there it is. Okay, sorry for the this distraction here. Um, okay, so um, we've been taking folk. We've been focusing this month on how we take refuge in the tip triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, with a focus on taking refuge in the Buddha. Next month, we'll focus on taking refuge in the Dhamma, and in March, on taking refuge in the Sangha. As I was studying this week, it seemed to me that these three gems, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, inter are. There is Buddha in the Dhamma, and Dhamma in the Buddha, and Buddha in the Sangha, and Sangha in the Buddha. So it is hard to separate them sometimes. One gem with three facets is what I'm thinking. When I was writing down my ideas this week, I caught myself saying, wait a minute, is that refuge in the Buddha or refuge in the Sangha? And maybe you'll find yourself asking the same question. Um, so I'm not going to um, say that I didn't mix up a few things in this talk this uh, today. So in addition to investigating what it means to take refuge in the triple gem, we've asked ourselves what it means to take refuge generally in our daily lives. For example, I was noticing that I have a morning routine of sitting with my coffee, writing a bit in my journal, offering meta, reciting some chants, looking out the window to see which birds are visiting my garden and noting those in my journal, checking the weather report, and so on. And I've been noticing that the consistency of routine generally and, ha um, and having quiet time to myself every day is comforting to me. I would say that I take refuge in it before I go out to interact with people or embark on the day's projects. I also take refuge in reading a favorite mystery. I guess that would be taking refuge in having my mind actively involved in a fun puzzle. And that's another form, form of comfort. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the wholesomeness of taking refuge, I've noticed often, has to do with the degree to which I am attached to it, as well as how the refuge is serving me. Is my intention wholesome or unwholesome? Am I taking refuge in an activity to avoid something? Is it replacing something that might be more beneficial to me? So these are some of the things I take, think about when I take refuge in um, things other than uh, 
the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In our practice, taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha goes deeper than finding refuge in the pleasant and comfortable. It's about finding refuge in what will end suffering and lead to freedom and awakening. When difficulty arises, reading a mystery is not going to lead to the end of my suffering, nor will my morning coffee and routines in and of themselves be enough to protect me from things like anger, confusion, fear, and disappointment. There are lots of things in our lives that can divert us momentarily away from the unpleasant toward the pleasant, but all of us here are here because we face challenges that required clear seeing and penetrating deep to a deep level of understanding and compassion. In our practice, we learn that we are blessed with three foundational gems and that they have power to shelter and support us as we find our way through the worldly winds toward the ultimate surrender to the truth of the way things are. This month during our Sunday sits, Suze, Lyndall, and Arv have talked about how refuge in the Buddha can make take many forms and can be on an outer level, an inner level, and an innermost level. The Buddha was a human being, not a deity. So taking refuge in the Buddha is not an act of deity worship. Many of us are drawn to Buddhism because of this. Taking refuge seems different than worshiping, although showing deep respect and appreciation of the Buddha does seem to be one of the forms that taking refuge in the Buddha can have. Altars and statues and bowing and chanting, for example, is a choice that some of us make and others don't. I know there's one um, talk that's very interesting by uh, a very um, senior Dharma teacher in our lineage, um, uh, Christina Feldman, and it's called My Long Journey to a Bow. And it's very interesting about how that, uh, how she transitioned and how she finally did bow, but she wasn't about to in the beginning. So maybe some of you can identify with that. Um, taking refuge in the Buddha can take many forms. And Suze reminded us uh, what Ajahn Suchita said, Suchito said, which is we can take whatever image of the Buddha lifts us up. And I, I really remember her saying that, and that, that makes sense to me. Many practitioners uh, um, find refuge in paying attention to the character traits of the Buddha and find that investigating and emulating traits such as truthfulness, compassion, perseverance, for example, guide them in how to live their lives fully and harmlessly. Knowledge that the Buddha was human and was able to transcend the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, including the delusion of the ego or self, seems like a tall order, but the fact that he did ultimately awaken can give us hope and even trust that it's also possible for us to awaken. As we heard earlier this month, the Buddha said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this. 
When the Buddha first started teaching, it is said that many of his followers were enlightened just listening to him speak the Dhamma. On the first day of his first teaching to the five ascetics, one of them was enlightened just hearing him. We can't hear the Buddha, but we can read his words in the suttas. And this is another way to take refuge and get a sense of who the Buddha was and what his actions were like. The first words attributed to the Buddha after he awakened, which tradition says he spoke to himself, have been a source of inspiration to me. And as Ajahn Sichito said, these words have lifted me up. And I'm going to share them with you. It's in the Dhammapada. And it says that after the Buddha spent the night under the Bodhi tree and had many insights of direct knowing, finally coming to the final knowing, the knowledge and vision arose in him, the suttas say. My deliverance is unassailable. This is my last birth. And then he spoke to himself. And this is what he said. Some of you might know this pretty well, but I I really have read these words many times. House builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build this house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridgepole is demolished too. My mind has now attained the unformed Nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. I really like that image and it reminds me of the um, 12 stages of dependent origination where we just construct this nice solid self for ourselves. It's interesting to me that we build houses for refuge from the elements, for protection from all kinds of dangers. And the metaphor compares building a house that we take refuge in to building a self that we take refuge in. But to awaken that shelter, that refuge has to be demolished in the end. It has to be let go of. So that is a guide for me. And sometimes I see those, you know, little rafters I'm making, trying to make myself solid. And I think of the Buddha's last words, house builder, you've been seen. Sometimes I think, what would the Buddha do? Reading the suttas gives me clues about living in the relative worldly world of daily living and practicing also in the absolute, universal, more mysterious world. I have another favorite sutta. Before he was enlightened, the Buddha did things that I do. This helps me not to judge myself too harshly. One time, the lay followers, the householders, were talking to him about their delight in sense pleasures and their difficulty with renunciation of those pleasures. And the Buddha shared, even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought, renunciation is good, but my heart did not leap up at renunciation. What is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation? I thought, I haven't seen the drawback. I haven't pursued it. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. This is from um, the Tapusa Sutta, and Tapusa was the um, name of the person, the householder he was talking to. Like me, he didn't 
the Buddha didn't immediately think, ah, renunciation is good. I'm going to do it and like it. He pointed out that he had to turn toward those sense pleasures in himself and investigate the good and the bad without judgment to thoroughly understand what was going on internally. And that's the way to cessation, non-judgmental allowing of compassion and understanding and mindfulness, direct knowing. That's what the Buddha did. That's how he awakened. Another way to take refuge in the Buddha that we talked about was to look for the Buddha nature in ourselves and in others. I was listening to a talk by Kitasaro, who was a monk for 15 years and was ordained by Ajahn Chah. And he said, the Buddha taught truly trustworthy principles. He realized that we, and he was including himself, Kitasaro was including himself when he was just, um, let's see, oh no, including himself when he was just a bodhisattva. So the Buddha was like this too, are refugees from our true nature. And when the Buddha was fully awakened, he discovered that he didn't actually attain something. He awakened to something that was timelessly present, always here and now, always inviting, but which had been overlooked. So I really like that comparison to attaining something, to awakening to something that's already there. And we, we've we heard that. It was in the... Um, the 10 ox earning pictures that we studied last year kept talking about, you know, going back to the beginning and seeing uh, our true self, which was already there. So that for me is, a, um, yeah, I like that quote about the Buddha and the way he awakened. Here's another story that points in this direction. When the Buddha was on his deathbed, he called his attendant Ananda and the bhikkhus who were with him at that time to give them last instructions. Ananda was very upset that he and all the followers of the Buddha were losing their teacher. He thought the Buddha would need to name a successor. But the Buddha said, and this is the quote from the suttas, what I have taught and laid down as Dhamma and discipline, and discipline, he was referring to the Vinaya, which is the discipline for the monks. This will be your teacher when I am gone. Each of you must make himself his island and no one else his refuge. We know that the Dhamma teaches us by means of our direct experience with the help of our meditation practice. And the Buddha said that all he taught was based on his own direct experience. So by taking refuge in the Buddha, we are also taking refuge in the Buddha within ourselves. And if we can awaken to this true nature within ourselves, doesn't it make sense that this is available to all sentient beings? So by taking refuge in the Buddha, we're also opening to taking refuge in the Sangha. So this is where I'm seeing the overlap. I want to finish by talking a little bit about awe. A-W-E, and the innermost Buddha. Maybe some of you saw an article on awe which appeared in the New York Times this month. It discussed findings in a book by a psychologist from UC Berkeley called uh, Dr. Keltner, 
And the book is Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. I remember listening to Lyndall's talk a few weeks ago when she talked about the possibility of taking refuge in the innermost Buddha. And she quoted Ajahn Chah, who said, the Buddha was, this innermost Buddha was timeless, unborn, unrelated to anybody, any history, any image. This Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of the truth of the unmoving mind. One of our Sangha asked Lyndall later to read the quote again, and I had wanted to ask her the same thing. So as I listened a second time, I didn't fully understand Ajahn Chah's description, but I wanted to think about it because it inspired awe in me. Awe, as explained by Dr. Keltner, is a feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world and which challenges us to rethink our previously held ideas. He said that awe can calm down the nervous system and trigger the release of oxytocin, which promotes trust and bonding. And in his study, uh, people were asked to keep journals of their awe experiences. And that included some um, uh, inmates from San Quentin Penitentiary. And he found that um, there are things all around us that spark, spark our awe all the time. And the people who kept journals, there were people in the United States and China. And on the average, they wrote about awe experiences two to four times a week. I, I think that taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and many of our other practices inspire the state of awe wonder in us. It's a wholesome and nurturing state and takes us in the direction of harmlessness, can open our hearts and support us in the presence of the unknown and what language can't describe. Dr. Keltner also said to uh, that witnessing simple acts of goodness in others inspires awe. And he uh, referred to Sharon Salzberg, who calls this interpersonal wonder. I think of this as a way to take refuge in the Sangha, to see the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha in others. When I gather with Sangha and see and hear about other yogis' experiences, I feel respect and awe for their vulnerability, their truthfulness, their compassion. Sharon says that she thinks awe is an absence of self-preoccupation. It seems to take us outside of our ego. And knowing that ultimately our awakening depends on that, it seems to me that uh, taking refuge in the Buddha is linked to awe and that they're both very, very good practices. So there's many ways to take refuge in the Buddha, the outer historical Buddha, the way he acted in life, the inner Buddha who had to dismantle his 
his ego to awaken, and the Buddha in others around us in our Sangha. So I'd like to close at this point and ask you to take a moment to think about taking refuge as we've been uh, reflecting on this month and What is the way that you have taken refuge in the Buddha? Whether it be the Buddha in the Buddha, the Buddha in the Sangha, Buddha in the Dhamma. How do you find that in your practice? Is it easy or difficult? Where has it taken you? So thank you for listening this morning. And if you would like to, um, this is a time when I will put you in breakout groups. There's quite a bit of time to um, talk. And I hope you'll stay to do that. But if you can't, this is a time to leave before I put you in breakout groups. Well, welcome back, everybody, and um, would love to hear any sharing that you might offer um, to everyone now, something from what you discussed or something else that um, you wanted to share about your practice or um, taking refuge. It can be anything from this month doesn't have to be just from today. Oh, good. Charlotte, you can unmute yourself. Yeah, thank you. Um, what came up for, for me was um, taking refuge in food rather than the drama. Um, and um, it's, it's been happening since I was a, a little child. Um, the, the stress of the family you know, just eat this and anyway, so that was very helpful, Laura, in your talk. It it um, brought that up again for me and and uh um so thank you. That's all I have to say for right yeah, now. That's fine. Yeah, because we all have, you know, take refuge in comfort and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And we learn slowly we we, you know, investigate it you can just be with it and and like the buddha look at it and see what what comes from it and maybe there's other refuges too maybe you know maybe that's not absolutely true i mean you're here today so you're taking some refuge other than food at this moment (laughs) so thank you for sharing yeah and uh um anybody else Judith? Yeah, we were talking, well, we talked a lot about awe 
Mm-hmm. And what I was thinking about is I explained to my group before you even said that I was thinking about the quality of reverence and how somebody in some other path, which I don't remember who, who or what path even had said, God doesn't need reference, but reverence, but we do. And so then I was getting into the, the similarities and the differences between awe and reverence. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. On reverence. So, so a feeling of reverence. We need a feeling of reverence. A feeling of reverence because it is, it's exalting and mm-hmm. it's, um, uh, well, we use the words holy or divine yeah. because it feels yeah. like it's taking us out of our right. daily grind, you know, yeah. and tuning us think, into something bigger. I think it would be the same thing. To I me, it's like it's really similar. And um, um, and I personally think we do need it, that that's why. That's why there's we yearn for something that's other than worldly. There's something in there. Um, so that's why I got interested and I saw that awe and I thought, oh yeah, I'm gonna read that. That I'm gonna tie that in somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and um I do think it's a quality um and it used to permeate everybody's life because, like, if you go back, just say Native Americans, I mean, it was just mixed in. Right. Um, and now we've gotten so separated that I think it has to be relooked at again. That's why there's this study. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my personal opinion, and that's why I brought it in. And I think it's part of that un. Well, unknowable, unexplainable, you can't use words. You know, we run into that when we practice. We, you know, people who talk about enlightenment, they just say there's no more words. You can't explain it. So you're just kind of left with it. Um, And I was thinking about that title of a book by Pema Chodron, Comfortable with Uncertainty, Mm -hmm. and that awe creates an ability to be comfortable with uncertainty and certainly uncertainty unexplainability is part of of our experience so that's what i was thinking yeah but thank you for bringing that up i'm going to think about that a little more <laughs> um Mikhail and uh Nikhail and Lillian whoever wanted to speak Um, yeah, I can just share what I shared in our group. I think for me, um, kind of taking refuge in the Buddha, the way I've been noticing it is um, just in terms of the gratitude for you know all the LDLs and people in these groups that are so open and honest about their difficulties and kind of share um, share things that aren't normally or frequently shared in other social settings and kind of just normalizing a lot of the difficulties that we maybe experience eternally, but um, maybe just think, are we the only people feeling this? You know, it, it brings a little bit more connection and um, ability to have compassion for ourselves, I think. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, just in terms of, you know, 
what are ways in which I can try to bring that in places outside of just Sims. And uh, I think it relates to me with maybe some of what I've been thinking about with right speech as well. Just what are the reasons that I, why am I saying what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, just have a lot of gratitude for this, you know, for Sims and you know the people that are just the, the environment that's like it's cultivated here. Thank you. I I really agree too, and that's why I brought up that um, awe because when I share and hear sharing in at Sims with the yogis, you know you have a choice to present what you think people want to see or what you would like to present to people. And when people are show their vulnerability and, you know, are there with that to me, that's awesome. I mean, it, it feels, you know, sometimes it's like, wow, you know, there's a choice and people choose kind of the higher, the higher, um, choice. And it's the same thing with uh, compassion. You know, I see people, when people have a choice, and they can be selfish, but they choose not to be they choose to. Um, yeah, it's just, um, it creates a sense of awe. And I think um, there's opportunity, a lot of opportunity in the Sangha to to experience that with other people. So I think that, was that what you were saying, Nikhil? Yeah, I think you kind of encapsulated it really well. Kind of, yeah, there's like a sense of awe with, yeah. you know, just seeing this thing that you don't see elsewhere, I think. Right. And there's, you know, kind of that, that realization that, you know, you can bring this openness and that there's this positive that comes from, not just for others, but I think also for yourself in terms of just bringing more I think when I, I found that when I'm able to be more open about my own struggles, it makes me also just have more compassion for myself as yeah. well. Uh, so I feel like it just helps in a lot of different ways. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a field of safety that is nurturing. You know, it's really a refuge, I think. So I, I, I agree with you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's see, uh, Helen. For me, I, the whole concept of awe and thinking about awe to me, um, is very much like the idea of beginner mind. And I see, I see awe as inherent in us. Like when, like young kids, they're all about awe. Everything is fascinating and interesting. And there's this open curiosity, um, that I think we all have in us, but it gets, it gets pushed aside by all others' preoccupations and things. And so um, it just made me think very much about how kids are and how dogs are. Like, <laughs> I think dogs are really wonderful uh, models for how to live when they're allowed to live happily. Um, and it's very much that, to me, connected to the interpersonal wonder that you mentioned that Sharon Salzberg um we're just using that term the interpersonal wonder and it it can be interpersonal it can be also with other just with things in the world um but i um 
yeah, it just really resonated with me. That sense of awe, that, that awe is in and of itself, a sense of, is a refuge. Um, and then the other thing that just was really sticking with me is the idea of awakening and revealing kind of not attaining. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's also very compatible that I, I think the awe is there for all of us. And sometimes we just don't let it manifest. That's just kind of how it's sitting with me today. Yeah. I like, I like, thank you for sharing that. Um, lots of possibilities with awe. It kind of opens, opens. And when you see um, some of the um, people who seem to be on the way or close to enlightenment, they seem to be like children in a certain way. Human beings that are like that seem to be seeing awe and wonder in just everything around them. Mm -hmm. So, So childlike, right? Not childish. Like we tend to say, use childish as something right. that's exactly. not good. But being childlike, yeah, is actually wonderful. Yeah, wonder, wonder, wonderful. Yes. Well, thank you. That's a that's a nice way to end our morning, and um, thank you all for being here. And uh, so we will close now. Um, I'd just like to remind you that um, you can offer Donna to Sims on the website. Um, we appreciate your generosity. Okay, so uh, let's just take a moment to, um, one minute to just kind of send our meta out to the world. May all beings have... Um, a worldly shelter for safety and protection, comfort and peace, and also an innermost refuge for wonder and awe and freedom and awakening. Thank you. See everybody maybe next week. Have a nice, beautiful day in the sun. Bye.